Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Richard, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us once again, we're so happy to have back film critic, Cam Collins. Hey, everyone. Cam, we we only have you for a few minutes, I should say, up front, so when you disappear from the show, uh, people shouldn't be too horribly disappointed and surprised. Um, But we really wanted to have you in. Uh, We've got a lot of things to talk about, but we're going to start by talking about mid-90s, since I believe you're reviewing it for us this week. I haven't seen it, but it feels like the movie that film critics really want to talk about amongst themselves, but I don't know if it's getting any buzz outside of that. It's Jonah Hill's directorial debut. It's about skateboarders. That's kind of all I know. And Cam, I think you were eager to talk about it. So um, tell me, do I need to see mid 90s thing this is my first question i don't think i don't think anyone needs to see any movie <laughs> but i also <laughs> particularly even by those standards don't think that you are really missing anything on this one at the very least i feel like when i left the screening i really was curious about the prospect of people having paid to see it and how they would feel at the end of it not even in terms of quality more because it's a pretty slight movie up front like it, and it, i don't think this is something that the movie isn't aware of but it is sort of over as soon as it starts for me. Really, there really isn't very much to it in some good ways and some bad ways. But I don't know. Do you have to see it? I don't know. There are like so many skateboarder movies this year. <laughs> 90s nostalgia is not going anywhere. If anything, we're at the we're at the beginning of what feels like it's going to be a really long moment of that. So I don't know. You'll get it. You'll get it elsewhere, I think. Yeah, I think the, the thing about it, the, the trailer might build expectations because it's it's kind of a pretty trailer like it's interesting yeah. it's a nice song like like it it it, it um, implies a profundity that like when you watch a movie doesn't really arrive i mean some people might think it yeah, is yeah i don't know if any i haven't spoken to anyone who's too taken with it but i think that's partially just because i mean you know it's skateboarders it's hip hop it's it's masculinity it's you could just add hip hop to a Richard Linklater soundtrack and I think that you'd get the better version. I think you'd get what this is like sort of going for, frankly. I can see why anyone involved would be excited about it. And I think that, you know, Gen X do your thing. But um, I don't know, you know, it's it's fine. It's fine. As someone who's like almost Gen X, I will say that like this didn't land with me at all, nor did it land with like any like men I know who are Gen X actually, like who it's for. You That's know? Encouraging. Is it not about millennials though? Like Jonah Hill's a full on millennial or an old millennial, but I feel like it's borderline. He's trying to do um you know, he put Harmony Korine in a in a cameo in the film. He's trying to do kids, basically. Yeah. It's what it is what he said he's trying to do. You know, like the ages that the kids are in this film, they would be like very like me elderly millennials, not like, you know, Right down the middle, millennial. This is a pro elderly millennial <laughs> podcast. So he's like he, he's like making a movie about I don't know the, the kids that he looked up to when he was a kid. But like what's also weird, you know, we talked about this in the context of Lady Bird and Moonlight and these other sort of very point of view director films. But like this is not the life that Jonah Hill grew up with. This is not his experience. You know what I mean? He's uh, from a much more privileged background, so it just feels like it doesn't feel 
genuine or lived in, it feels like observational and not even like profoundly observational. Well, he apparently did frequent a skate shop when he was a kid growing up in LA, but then he was going home to Brentwood. So right. like, I feel like the, 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 the socioeconomic class of the, of the main boy in this movie, who I think is supposed to be sort of Hill stand in, that's not reflective of his actual life. I mean, I, I, I don't know where either you, Joanne or Kim, fell on this, but a big issue I took with the movie was some of its language. Like, I think that in particular, the frequent prolific use of the F word. Uh, which, Not that one, the other one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I feel like it was the kind of thing where you're like, well, but oh, it's a period piece and that's what we boys like that you know sounded like and so it's kind of hiding behind that excuse and i don't really think the movie earns that authenticity i guess you could call it and and that bothered me yeah it is one of like a number of pejoratives that that are used in the movie that i think the movie expects us to say well these are like young people at a certain moment in the 90s who love hip-hop and so this is the way that they would speak i i do feel like if it were a more interesting movie <laughs> i would have fewer you know historically or in any way more interesting movie i think it would have fewer qualms about it but it is really just sort of like watch a lot of tarantino saw him get away with it and so therefore <laughs> right. This is the moment of people falling in love with Tarantino movies. That's like kind of early mid nineties. So that does feel like the, the kind of the going excuse. It, it is not really, again, like uh, the movie that I thought of the most actually was the Linklater movie. Everybody wants some, not because it's really similar in style or anything, but because of the things that arise between the men. And, and in that case, if that movie had had a bunch of f bombs, et cetera, I would have been like, well, this does feel sort of like a baseball team thing, and this is a movie that's being smart about how men interact with themselves and each other. But this mid nineties is not on that level. To be fair, it's a debut movie, but still. Yeah, and then the one thing I want to say in its favor, um, if we're gonna like dig in and try to find something, is I genuinely did like the kids in this. I thought. Um, you know, some more than others, but I thought the you know the performances are very natural. Definitely, what Jonah Hill was going for. I think he went to a lot of great lengths to you know make these little baby millennials, uh, if they are even that, like put away their phones on set and like try to live in the world of the nineties and stuff like that. And like, I don't know, you can roll your eyes at whatever a lot of things I think that Jonah Hill has said about how he made this film, but I think that. Uh, whatever he did to elicit like some of the performances in this film, I think, or or these kids are just naturally brimming with talent. Um, but I would have happily watched them in in another film, is what I'm saying. Yeah, they're really charismatic. Um, I wish that I mean, among the non kids, I wish that Catherine Waterson had more to do. She's in the thing. Jeez, busy fall. She plays. She plays his mom. She's the the mother of the main kid and Lucas Hedges, who is. Wait, how old is she? In the movie, well, in the movie, she had Lucas Hedges at 18, and he's turning 18. So she's 18 plus 18. I don't do math before. I <laughs> would have sworn she and Lucas Hedges were the same age. Uh, I guess they're not. She's actually born in 1980. She's older than She's I in her mid-90s. <laughs> yeah. Sure. It's, about, it's about her being mid-90s, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think that she is a you know an incredible actress, and and her role is is strange. I don't know how you guys felt about this, but in line with the language stuff, I also just thought the the, the strangeness toward male anger <laughs> was was a little odd. I don't want to give away because I do think that if there's one thing I want people to see this movie for, it's this habit that the main kid has of self injury that seems like it it there's like a subtext of that that this movie is not 
prepared to deal with yeah. at, 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 right now in particular, but not even within the scope of the movie at all. The movie hints at a sort of deeper story and then sort of shies away from it. And you're like, okay, this could be an interesting... Like, it introduces this self-harm thing, and you're like, okay, so here's what the, maybe the movie psychologically is going to be about. And then it's not, right. really. So. And it's weird self-harm. I'm not talking about, like, you know, like the sort of self-harm that people read about in high school and are told not to do. I'm talking about more innocuous but still strange yeah. <laughs> stuff. And that, combined with the scene of a kid yelling at Catherine Watterson, is just like, wow, so this kid's got some anger issues. It's got, like, some white kid rage issues in, in particular. And in the context of the hip-hop scene and the skateboarding scene, that is interesting to think about this kid who's in some ways trying to be more black but is typifying what in the media right now we think of as particularly, like, you know, angry straight white guy thing. Um, but I don't know that the movie is really prepared for anyone to ask any questions about what is the most interesting thing in the movie, frankly. Because once you ask a question about it, it's like, well, yeah, the movie has nothing to say about, has nothing to say about that. Yeah, there does seem to be something about this coming after the Kavanaugh hearings where we were kind of like enmeshed in like high school boy behavior from the 80s that a, a movie asking us to basically do the same thing for the 90s. It's like, oh, man, like, haven't can't we get a break from like boys with anger issues who are, you know, like white kids with some amount of privilege? It, it does feel like it's a, a trip I don't want to take. And something that bothers me about the way the movie's presented, both in its trailer, the way it was kind of r- rolled out at um, Toronto and, you know, is that like it? It assumes a universality where everyone's gonna be like, "Oh yeah, that's that's what it was like." And it was like that's what it was like for a very specific subset of people. And obviously, I'm I'm happy to watch a movie about a very specific subset of people, but like there has to be a sort of not, not necessarily an in, but a reason, right. you know. And I don't feel like the movie has a reason beyond it existing and it being Jonah Hill who made it. Well, isn't the reason the soundtrack? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, point. I mean, yeah. Right? Yeah. Isn't this like? I think we should at this point like just say about a movie that you know this movie's going to get more attention than other movies because you had the budget to have a better music licensing deal than anyone else i feel that about that way i feel that about about beautiful boy as well where the soundtrack is so overwhelmingly curated that you wonder where the movie went like i feel it's just like so i think that you know in terms of vanity projects i think this is interesting in that it's really just a playlist with yeah. extremely charismatic kids, some cool shots of skateboarding, a weird anger thing. But really it's about like the posters on his walls, the the you know, the kind of hip hop dress of Lucas Hedges. Seeing Lucas Hedges be like a fake white thug is probably the funniest thing <laughs> I've seen <laughs> in my life. You're watching this movie and I'm like, I want this Lucas Hedges movie, yeah. actually, like more of this movie with Katherine Watterson and maybe Gerard Carmichael. And I feel bad because I'm like, okay, can all the actual actors just be in a movie? But I did like, I liked the kids, but I was just like, they're not, you know, they're not performing. Lucas Hedges, like that, that storyline, once again, like you said, with like the self-harm thing, that storyline feels like it's building to something and then it just doesn't. And I'm like, what's, why, what, I, I was waiting for the payoff here and there's nothing. Yeah. And speaking of the sort of playlist aspect of it and that it's a, a sort of stylistic thing and not really much of a substance thing is like even the A24-ness of it like has a kind of like pose to it. Like yeah. like there's a special logo that they do with the like skateboards to, to you know, to introduce that it's an A24 film. And we love A24. They put out great things. So it's not their problem. I think it's more Jonah Hill making this very sort of tailored thing, but also a shallow thing, you know, um, that puts on an air of of depth and doesn't have it. The thing that I um 
But I think I mentioned last week when we were talking about whether or not like we would want to see eighth grade get the push or this film get the push um, at the Oscars if we had if it, it were an either or. And I was like, I'd rather hear Bo Burnham talk a lot about his project than hear Jonah Hill, because what I heard from Jonah Hill, at least at Fantastic Fest, was just a lot of clanging name dropping where he was talking about how like Marty Scorsese helped him with this and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, this is not a way for me to get like feel the gritty like ness of your like debut as a filmmaker meanwhile bro burnham is like was like mainlining youtube videos to understand what kids exactly do and i'm like i don't care what scorsese I, I you know it's like i do but it just it just feels so posery to say like you know here are all the here are all the names i can drop all the great filmmakers who helped me make this like really down to earth back to basics sort of film you know well, don't forget, Jonah Hill at this point is kind of a fashion icon. Like, it does feel like this is a somehow connected to him being this, like, scumbro aesthetic, pioneering streetwear in these weird ways where people are, like, celebrating his fashion at days in Williamsburg. Like, it feels, having not seen the movie, again, like, it just it has this, like, fashion film vibe about it. Like, when Tom Ford starts making movies and it's, like, about the aesthetics much more than the film itself, even though I think Tom Ford has made some good movies. Um, it's just, it, it feels very tied up in his fashion reputation, maybe more than... I just wanted to correct you, Katie, really quick. Um, Tom Ford has made no good movies but <laughs> ah, <damn it. laughs> i'm not allowed to like a single man we're bringing back uh, the nocturnal uh, animals uh, wars <laughs> i could watch amy adams reading the tub all day but there were other things in that movie <laughs> <laughs> oh my god nocturnal animals really put us through the ringer <laughs> that season to your point like accordingly this does feel like you know in the way that jonah hill is sort of turned into a scum bro it's like not really his thing this does feel like a a little bit like drag for me. Like it, if he were really a scumbro, this would be closer to kids. Kids is like a weird movie and it's like a risky movie. And that's not what's going on here. Like, yeah, kids feels like a snuff film. You're like, right. are they really doing this? Like, like what is going on? And I mean, maybe it was, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but like, I remember seeing it as a teenager and being like, holy shit. Like, I can't believe that this right. is a movie that like I read about in entertainment weekly. Um, but you're right. Like uh, mid nineties feels like more of a put on. It's a yeah. bit like he's trying to do a thing, but like then kind of, I don't want to spoil any endings or anything, but like he kind of backs away from its, well, we're talking about the self-harm thing. He backs away from its darker sort of angles and edges. Yeah. And um, I don't doubt that there is a genuine darkness to be found in the world he's depicting in the movie. But I think it's maybe telling of his own experience as a, as a kid that like, he doesn't really know how to talk about that because maybe he wasn't there for it. Yeah, and I don't want to, like, it's it's not that everything's, like, totally, totally whitewashed. It's just sort of, like, what are we supposed to get out of this movie? I don't need, like, moralizing. I don't need a big message. But there are things in this movie that I'm just like, yeah, this is where the movie is. Make the movie about this. And then he totally just backs backs away. There's, like, an act of forgiveness-ish at the end of this movie in, the, in a hospital that is just, like... You know, if I were that character, I would <laughs> yeah. be yanking some people around yeah. by their hair right now. I um, also think that it's it kind of, I mean, they're, they're not at all thematically similar, but like like Miseducation of Cameron Post and, and Boy Erased um, this year have also suffered from is a, a, a interesting supporting characters surrounding a kind of blank at the middle, mm -hmm. who is a stand-in for a real person or, you know, an imagined version of a real person. And... um. I, I think that like there are characters in mid nineties, be it some of the other kids in at the skate shop, Catherine Watterson, Lucas Hedges, where you're like, okay, like I would be preferred to watch that movie because I don't know who this this person is. I I think that like and and I had this same problem with Ladybird. I'll be honest, is 
how much would we care about that central character if we didn't know who they became? Hmm. You know, and and I think that I think mid 90s suffers from that much more than than Lady Bird does. But, um, you know, it just left me feeling kind of like like, you know, qui bono. Like, what was this? For. But it's funny you mentioned Lady Bird because one of my jokes about that movie, a movie that I love, but one of my jokes at, it, at its expense maybe is that it is like a blue check mark movie. It is like, this is how one grows up to be a writer in New York. <laughs> and mid 90s is like, this is how one grows up to be like a pitchfork writer or something. Or, you know, just like a, like a kind of, a kind of man now that I know in the city who grew up in LA, who went to skate shops, who, is now in New York in media. If if you were to tell me that were the end game of this movie, yeah, he works for Vice now, right? Like it's an origin <laughs> story with an assumed end, right? You know? And yeah. and, and uh, Lady Bird, I think, was much more interesting in that regard because it was much more interested in her kind of creative spirit. But this is just sort of like, I mean, what it is interesting is seeing this kid see a certain kind of masculinity and sort of want to try it out. But the movie just, yeah, it doesn't go there in interesting ways. But yes, he's a writer now. We probably follow him on Twitter. <laughs> I have one more question to close it out before we have to let Cam go. Do we have any theories on how this wind up being A24's only fall release? We talked about how they're going to put their money behind eighth grade. They still got Tony Collette for Hereditary to run behind. Um, but they've gotten Best Picture nominations for the last four years in a row. And it does feel like a little bit trickier for them. And obviously, people still want to work with them. I just can't totally figure out how this wound up being their one big movie of the fall. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I especially when you consider like Fox Searchlight has several things. And like, you know, there's there um, other places are doing a lot. Um, I, I don't know. Like as Sony Pictures Classics is having kind of a weird off year too like i think it's just kind of cyclical um a24 had an amazing run um that said maybe earlier on in the kind of genesis of this movie they felt like it was going to be this verite you know sort of ramble that everyone connected to um so I, I, I could see in a different version of that movie that that would be there but i think maybe also they didn't realize how strong a, a, a property they had in eighth grade and um, I, I think that that I think that that movie could surprise us in terms of how many Oscar nominations it gets. But um, maybe I'm being overly optimistic. That would be great. Okay, Cam, we'll let you go and get to your screening. Thank you for hopping back in. We will have you back on very soon for a full episode next time. This was fun. Bye, everyone. Bye. So now we want to catch up on a little bit of what kind of what's been percolating in the news, both on our local level and then out there, uh, box office wise, festival wise. There's still so much going on this time of year. Richard's off to two film festivals over the next two weeks. Uh, Joanna and I have wrapped up our local film festivals. And Joanna, you had a an IRL encounter with Barry Jenkins that uh, felt very telling about both him and Beale Street and everything else. Uh, tell us what you and Barry Jenkins got up to. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, Barry and I hung out together. Um, Barry, next time. <laughs> Barry Jenkins and uh, Kiki Lane, who is the star of If Bill Street Could Talk, they screened their film as the closing night film of the Mill Valley Film Festival. Um, and they did a you know long Q&A and then both um, went to the closing night party afterwards. And but, like it's just interesting because I was sitting down in the theater and I've been to the Mill Valley Film Festival for several years. I love this film festival. I love Marin County where I grew up, but it is a very white place. And I, I sat down in the theater and I was like, yeah, there's, there's more people of color in, in like this room than I've ever seen at a Mill Valley Film Festival screening ever, which is still extremely low. And, uh, you know, so Barry Jenkins is like, he screens this film and there, I, you know, like, without spoiling much of the film, I'll just say that there's like many, many times when like the characters in the film say with like great gusto and authenticity, like that, you know, white people are evil. That's a thing that is said repeatedly in the film. And then also, you know, this is something that I was wary about from the moment I read the description, which is that, you know, the premise of the film the premise of the book uh is that you know there's a young woman 
who has, um, you know, is having having a baby. Uh, her boyfriend who impregnated her is in jail and he's wrongly accused of sexual assault. And I was like, as soon as I saw that description a while ago, I was like, I don't know that that's the story that we want to, that I'm really, really excited to see right now is a story of like a young man falsely accused of sexual assault. And then for it to come out uh, this, you know, at the Mill Valley Film Festival this month, like so close to the Kavanaugh hearing when, when like Donald Trump is walking around saying like, it's a scary time for young men in, in America. I was like, once again, I was like, hi, I'm having trouble with this. The other thing that if Bill Street could talk is about is about the the unfair way the system treats young black men or uh, black people in general in America, in the world. And so then these are like two conflicting sort of interesting subject matters that I'm like, I was having trouble reconciling. And so I basically like, the film ended and I still felt uncertain about how I felt about it. So I just wanted to like sit with it. And Barry Jenkins just like from the start of the Q&A is like, hi, listen, we made this film. We started shooting the day the Harvey Weinstein story broke. So it was very important to me that, you know, the the woman who is sexually assaulted in the film like is believed and she's not the villain. And that's true of the book. And like he just got out in front of any questions of that nature. And then he also addressed, he was like, and I, uh, he closed with this. He was like, I look out in the room. I see what everyone here looks like. He's like, there are some hard things said uh, in this movie. And I just want to like, thank you all for seeing the movie and then staying and talking to me about it because like, these are the conversations we need to have. And like, I, I don't know. I just, I was like, Barry Jenkins, I was impressed. It was, you know, he's, he's always very interesting to hear from, I think. And I was impressed with how he had his messaging already in place. I know this is not his first rodeo, his first film festival, but like, he already had his messaging in place and he was able to deliver it in a way that sounded like um, organic and thoughtful and not just like rote defensive, like don't come at me with your issues sort of thing. So actually I find myself still processing how I feel about uh, if Bill Street could talk and uh, the various messages from it. But in terms of like watching these filmmakers on the circuit trying to sell their films to Academy voters, you know, I, I am both impressed and unimpressed by some of the people that I've seen. And I was I was very impressed uh, by what Barry Jenkins did there. Yeah, I think that the, it's the interesting thing about that film at festivals. You know, we spoke a lot on this podcast speculating about why it wasn't at Telluride and, you know, instead premiered at Toronto. And, you know, I, I think since then, after seeing the movie and also talking to some other people, the reason he premiered it at Toronto was that they were it was bound to be a more diverse audience. And I think that that's a real reality that we have to think about at film festivals, um, especially given that a lot of times these are the first time that someone's, you know, an audience is seeing a movie and how they react really can affect a movie's trajectory. Um, and so I think that it's interesting that now that that sort of Toronto moment is passed, you know, to see how the movie travels elsewhere, um, you know, it had a big screening at the at the Apollo Theater in Harlem uh, at the New York Film Festival, and I think that was received pretty well. So I, I think the movie is playing well to broader audiences, but I, I think that it's fair and reasonable that, you know, Barry Jenkins and, you know, everyone else involved with the making and the dis- distribution of the film um, was sort of initially protective of 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 uh, its first audience. 
Um, I wanted to pause really quick just to talk about one of the first sets of nominations that have come out uh, this fall, the Critics' Choice Documentary Award nominations. Uh, Joanna, you and I are both part of the Critics' Choice group, but we didn't vote on these. The documentary nominations come from a, a panel of people who wisely have seen more of these movies than at least I have. Um, and there's a lot of things that we've talked about in here. RBG, uh, the Mr. Rogers movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor, Three Identical Strangers. But I was really struck by the uh, strong performance by Minding the Gap, which is, uh, I believe, the one of the other skateboarding movies that we were referencing when we talked about mid-90s. Um, it got five nominations, which is the, the second most, just below Free Solo. Uh, I haven't seen Mining the Gap yet, so I don't want to talk about it too much, but it is a Hulu film, and it would be Hulu's kind of first big entry into this space. So I just, as we talk about like more and more players coming into the Oscar race, it does seem like Mining the Gap is making a good standing for itself. We have determined that Mining the Gap is eligible, right? Because it did run theatrically. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's an interesting movie. Um, uh, Cam has a good review of it uh, on on VF.com If people want to read that, um, it's a movie he kind of like, you know, really wanted to zero in on. Um, and it's it's a it's an interesting movie. I mean, you know, I think it's funny that the, that that nomination those nominations came out the same week we're talking about mid nineties because they bear a lot of similarities in 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 some ways, and then you know, mining the gap does so much more. Uh, in terms of investigating its its characters, I mean they're real people, so that helps. But but you know it has a lot to say about um, you know cl- class in America and race in America and masculinity in America, um, in particular. Uh, that uh, yeah, it's it's encouraging to see that movie. Uh, you know, get on the table for this first kind of round of nominations. I'm also excited about Free Solo because I think that movie is excellent too. Yeah, I definitely I plan to get a look at Mining the Gap. And it, like so many of the Netflix things, it's extremely easy for everybody to see. Wouldn't it be funny if somehow Hulu won an Oscar before Netflix Yes, <laughs> I thought of that exactly this morning when Katie's like, we're going to talk about Mining the Gap. I was like, wouldn't it be funny if Hulu <laughs> won before Netflix? And they got their Emmy before, well, they got their best drama Emmy before uh, Netflix. So If that happens at the Oscars, we'll just see like, Ted Sarandos's face like right in the camera and then it'll cut out. <laughs> <laughs> the Oscars will be over. Okay, so let's wrap up our news uh, bump by getting into the box office for First Man, which felt like there were a lot of apocalyptic headlines about a serious space drama that only made $16 million over the weekend. And I, I've, you know, I've been very present as the First Man defender on the show. I really like the movie, so I don't want to seem like I'm super in the tank. Um, but I, I, there does seem to be this narrative being around it being like, oh boy, it's damaged goods. It's not as huge a hit as Star is Born, which I don't know if anything's going to be as huge a hit as Star is Born. Uh, I really want to keep the faith alive for this one, but are you guys more skeptical? Well, Katie, you should really stop reading Breitbart first. Of all. <laughs> I mean, I they just keep telling me about all the flag burning, and I'm I'm upset. I guess I forgot how like politicized this whole thing was. I I was curious why you were. Well, I know you're so defensive of it because you genuinely like it, and that's one reason. But I was like, we should talk about this. Uh, you know, it underperforming in the podcast, and Katie's like, yeah, we should because it is being overblown. <laughs> <laughs> I need the truth to come out. I don't know. Like, I mean, weren't you saying? Was it last week or two weeks ago that I believe David Sims had told you that like space movies do really well in the fall? I mean, you know what I mean? There was just like some (laughs) expectation around it that like it didn't meet. And that's like, that's okay. But I think it's the kind of movie that like um, at the festival, the festival reaction wasn't so strong that it can't, I, I don't think it can like run without popular support from audiences, you know? That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, and it only has a B plus from CinemaScore. So as much as any of us believe what CinemaScore, which is you know audience exit polling, uh, has to tell us, like that's 
good, but it's not great. You know, um, like I think Star is Born was like A plus or something like. But I also think that just by the movie's design, I don't think it was ever going to be Apollo 13 because it's not. I, and I don't I mean, maybe the the flag controversy affected that. I, I don't know. But like, it's not it's not a thriller. It's 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 very much a drama. There are technical you know aspects to it there are scenes that are exciting or tense or whatever but like it's a it's a it's a mood piece in a way and no marketing can really cover that up for too long you know and i think look it, it it's a 60 million dollar movie it's made 25 globally so far and in, in one weekend like it's doing okay it's fine I was trying to compare its opening weekend to La La Land's, which is proving actually a little more tricky for me to do because of La La Land's like limited rollout release. Um, but it looks like for La La Land's like wide opening weekend, it was nine million, and this is domestically, and this is sixteen million domestically. So you know, it's like it's actually you know it's doing better than La La Land, which dances way all the way to Best Picture, so or nomination. Uh, so. I mean, we, we shouldn't think of things only in awards shows, even though that's what this podcast is. But I, I don't know. I was just, I was expecting, I guess, I was expecting that First Man would be like kind of like a sully kind of hit with audiences. And um, it just, it, it so far uh, has not turned out to be. The comparison I was making was to The Post, which was kind of a, one of the few big studio nominees, Best Picture nominees last year. And I think arrived as something as a little bit underwhelming, didn't get some of the nominations we thought it might. But uh, it uh, opened limited over Christmas and then debuted to a $19 million in January. Uh, this is a really different window. It's a different time period in terms of Oscar narrative. Um, but it did get a Best Picture nomination despite some somewhat underwhelming box office. So that's kind of a, that was my optimistic viewpoint on it. Yeah, the Sully opening numbers are $35 million. I don't know why I <laughs> thought Dude, it, it opened to $35 million. <laughs> Clint Eastwood, baby. Clint Eastwood. We haven't talked about it yet, but Clint Eastwood has a movie coming out uh, with Bradley Cooper in it uh, later this year. So we got to keep an eye out for those Sully numbers. Clint Eastwood has a movie coming out and people, including David Sims, are like putting it on their Oscar shortlist. And I'm like, like, really? And again? Uh, but apparently, yeah, people think that like people think he that Eastwood could get a nomination instead of Redford in terms of the old man oh. you know, slot. I do wonder about the old man and the gun because it, it's making its way out there. But it's, it does feel like it got overshadowed pretty badly by the fall festivals. Yeah. Ugh. the thing with Clint Eastwood is that every time he shows up in December with a movie everyone's like oh god is it going to be Million Dollar Baby because he just so turned the Oscar race on its head once and then American Sniper um, I think the prevailing theory is that it opened a little bit too late like probably could have won Best Picture had it opened a little bit earlier because it was such it was the biggest movie of its year which is so crazy it made like 600 million dollars right yeah it's it's bananas Um, so you you can't count him out I mean I don't know how much I like want to automatically jump in there but the, the idea of Bradley Cooper and Clint Eastwood being kind of this like double act going on the Oscar campaign like I mean I, I would be an Academy voter who'd want to talk to them at a lunch I guess the question is what which potential best picture Oscar presenter do you want to hear s- say the mule <laughs> <laughs> Harrison Ford like that's a you know. Jean Dujardin <laughs> let me let me just before we move off of this read the one line description of the mule uh, Clint Eastwood's upcoming film which is a 90 year old horticulturalist and World War II veteran is caught transporting 3 million worth of cocaine through Michigan for a Mexican drug hort- cartel so if you want a uh, nonagenarian horticulturalist film. This is, you know, Clint Eastwood is here for you. Oh, I didn't realize it was a documentary. <laughs> <laughs>
This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. So we're going to close the episode with Mike's interview with Jason Reitman, the director of The Front Runner. But really quick before then, I wanted to hear a little bit from Richard about Can You Ever Forgive Me, which opens in theaters this week. Uh, Richard, you wrote a review of it on uh, VF.com. You were talking about kind of like the melancholy behind it, but how it is not, you know, so depressing. Um, anyway, you really like this movie. Tell me why. I really liked the movie. Um, I saw it at Telluride and I feel like the reception to it was like positive, but like, you know, muted. And then it really played well in Toronto. And I feel like Melissa McCarthy, who's the star of it, Richard E. Grant, who is, um, you know, her co-star essentially, but will, you know, be a sort of supporting contender this year. Like, I feel like they're really much, you know, in, in the hunt. So for the purposes of this podcast, it's worth um, you know, putting on the map, but um, just also as a film goer, and I, I think it's a really neat little movie. It's about Lee Israel, who was a bi- biographer t- turned, um, you know, when her career took a downturn, she started forging letters from famous wits like Noel Coward and Fanny Bryce and Dorothy Parker. And she was very good at it. And she made money and then she got caught and, you know, uh, and then wrote a memoir about that. So, um, it's a weird little story, uh, set in the early nineties in New York city, um, but it's it's very uh, it's very well observed. It's you know Mariel Heller uh, wrote it or, or directed it rather, and um, Jeff Witte and Nicole Holof Center, who we recently had on the podcast, uh, uh, wrote the script, and it feels very um, particular about its New Yorkiness and its time period and everything, and yet I think also um, has some broad appeal too. And I think that balancing that. The, the specifics with the, the the kind of larger, you know, sentimental or emotional insights um, is tricky. And I think that Heller does it really well. And I think it's a, a really auspicious follow up to um, The Diary of a Teenage Girl. I'm so excited about that follow up nature. I'm excited to see the movie. I, I love Diary of a Teenage Girl so much. And it was one of those under the radar awards saying, sort of like, Kristen Wiig's amazing. Belle Pally's amazing. And, you know, she, Belle Pally has really broken out since then. Um, but just the idea that this is kind of more firmly in the awards conversation, that people will keep talking about it for months and months. And maybe like you, Richard, like sit on it and think about it and, and have it grow in esteem, which is like one of the, the best things about the way that we talk about movies for six months during award season. I, I hope that keeps happening more. Yeah, and I think another thing to to mention about the movie, and you know, which I think is a is is a an aspect of the film that weirdly hasn't been zeroed in on. I mean, I think people are mostly focusing coverage on most of Carthy's great and a dramatic role, you know, whatever. 
but it's a queer movie. I mean, you know, Lee Israel was, as far as I'm aware, identified as a lesbian. Uh, her her friend Jack Hawk, the one played by Richard E. Grant, is a gay man um, who is HIV positive, and um, you know, and then in the early '90s, uh, when a lot of you know scary stuff was happening in New York in the gay community, um, and the movie is not about that. But it's certainly a part of the texture of the movie in a way that does not feel like an afterthought. Like it's it's definitely a part of the movie, uh, and I th- I really appreciate that. It's 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 interesting, you know, in this era of Cameron Post and Boy Raced, to see a movie about gay people. You know, I wrote when I wrote about Love Simon, uh, I wrote that like you know it would be interesting to see stuff past coming out and past first love and first realizations, and you know about grownups who are out and have been out for a long time. Um, and are living lives. And here is that movie. You know, it's it's a little dark and a little bit, I don't know, d- depressing at times, but, it, you know, it's it's an interesting story uh, that we really never see told. So uh, I think people should check it out if they're hungry for something different. That's a good endorsement. So let's turn now to the interview that Mike did with Jason Reitman, who is both a director of The Front Runner, which uh, stars Hugh Jackman as Gary Hart, uh, but had a whole other movie out earlier this year, Tully, which I really loved. I know we've talked about it on the show before. Um, Jason, he's been uh, Oscar nominated before. Uh, he is kind of a he's in the club and someone whose movies you pay attention to every time they come out. Um, so he and Mike talked about uh, The Front Runner, the current state of politics and how busy this guy is these days. So I'm thrilled to be here with Jason Reitman, the director of two amazing films this year, The Front Runner and Tully, uh, and wanted to start by talking to you about The Front Runner, which I saw in Telluride, where it got a great reception. You said this film is like a mirror, and it mirrors how people are thinking about politics in general. How did you approach it? How, how did you, what was your, what was your thought process in making a film like that? Well, first of all, uh, thank you for that introduction. That's absolutely lovely. Now I'm even more pleased to be on your podcast. <laughs> Great. You know, my introduction to the Gary Hart story really came through a podcast. Uh, the It was Radiolab, and they did a piece on his story and the scandal. And I, I couldn't quite believe it. I couldn't believe that there was this moment when uh, the presumed next president of our country wound up in an alleyway in the middle of the night with these reporters and no one knew what to do because no one had ever been in, in their shoes before. And it, and it played out like a movie, like a, like a film noir as kind yeah. of a thriller. And, and when I started bringing up the story to other people, I found that everyone's reaction was different. Some people heroized Hart, some people heroized the journalists. There really was a dozen different points of view uh, or ways to interpret how this how this moment, this one-week story, put us on a trajectory towards 2018. And I, I just knew that I wanted to make a movie, but it wasn't really until I started sharing the story with my friends and my collaborators in movie making that I realized, oh, we need to take this kind of multi-directional approach, that there needs to be 20 main characters because everyone's going to have a different way in. And I, I suppose that's why I say mirror, because... No two people watch the same movie. There's certain films where kind of the audience has the same exact experience, and that's kind of the joy of it, right? This kind of uh, collective experience of a group of strangers that have never met before. Right. Uh, what I've found with The Front Runner and with the story in general is that you watch it with the person sitting next to you, and your experiences are completely different, and, and, it, and it starts, you know, a real conversation. 
Well, I'll tell you what my experience was. I came out of there saying that was like a monster movie, <laughs> and the monster is the tabloidization of politics, and no one in the movie wants it, but everyone, just by doing what they have to do, you know, is helping to create it. <laughs> that, that was my takeaway. It's just like, oh my God, right. this is the inception of something that has kind of taken over our society. Yeah, and, and certainly I, I see that side of it, and I'm not a big fan of tabloid journalism, but, you know, we have to balance that with our our curiosity, which is innate. I mean, there's yeah. a reason why tabloids are successful, both, you know, uh, in their kind of former magazine form and then also in their kind of current Internet form. We're curious people. We want to know and we want to know who these uh, candidates are as human beings and we want to know about their flaws. And we don't quite know how to govern ourselves. We don't know where that line is. And and of course, you know, that line is different for every person. Well, and I, I like that you insisted on in- incorporating the perspective of, you know, I think it's one of the female journalists in the in the film where there's a proto Me Too thing here. It's like, wait a minute, if this right. is this guy's way of behaving, we do have a right to know that. And I and I'm, I was glad that it wasn't just like, oh, isn't it sad that this great man was taken down, that there was a lot right. of nuance to it. No, I mean, and look, I, I, that's why Hart kind of serves as an interesting test case. You know, he was smart, cerebral, thoughtful, had great ideas and was a charismatic candidate, uh, but was flawed and made real human mistakes that stand out. And and for that reason, people come away two ways on him. And and I found that my producer, Helen Esterbrook, who I've been working with since Up in the Air and who I have conversations about gender all the time with, uh, and, and, and really is the reason where I think in Up in the Air, the conversations between George and Vera or George and Anna have the weight that they do is because of my conversations with Helen. And our conversations on this movie uh, were amped up tenfold. And very often that kind of point of view, the point of view of Anne Roy at the Washington Post, who serves as the voice in the paper saying, you know, this matters, is really important. What was the working relationship like with with Matt Bai and Jay Carson? Because they come right out of this politics world, right? Where Matt was a reporter and and Jay was a political operative. How did you guys all work together? It was really fun for me because, you know, I... I'm not a student of history. I'm a student of movies. Right. I love movies. I'm a film director. And when you make a political movie, it, it can give off the impression as though somehow, you know, you have a degree in history and that's just not the case. Working with someone who was uh, a journalist for the New York Times Magazine and um, and covered five presidential elections and working with a political operative who was the press secretary for Hillary Clinton and Howard Dean and, and, and senators who you know remain in Congress. I just, the stories are rich and fascinating and funny. And, and as writers, they are this resource where we are trying to create a world that feels messy and real and carries the kind of dialogue that you would hear if you just were dropped in the midst of a campaign or on the floor of a newspaper. And here we have two people with all this experience who, you know, originally were on either side of the battlefield, really. I mean, these are two people, you know, kind of in a, in a, in a fight to control the narrative uh, when they were working uh, in that world. And to be suddenly in a room where they are sharing all these intimate stories so that the movie can come to life, I, uh, you know, it, it's just a, a gift and it makes me feel like a, a passenger in the car. 
And then, obviously, you know, you mentioned there are a lot of main characters, but obviously the biggest one is, is Gary Hart, and uh, played by yeah. Hugh Jackman. Did you have to persuade him to do this role? I mean, it's, he's playing against type in certain ways, right? He's kind of, on the one hand, Hart has to be charismatic and likable, which is what we all associate with Hugh Jackman. On the other hand, he's kind of a curmudgeonly guy who, in some ways, is in denial through a lot of this movie and is not always behaving that well. Right. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if you had experience. I had this experience when I saw Logan, where all of a sudden a new, a new side of Hugh Jackman opened up to me. Like, I knew yeah. he was a movie star. I knew he was funny and charismatic and obviously, you know, an amazing action star. But there was this moment in, in watching Logan where, I, you know, it's hard to explain, but he, he just kind of grew up into a new chapter of his career and and it was such a nuanced, heartbreaking performance, particularly for like a uh, a superhero character to be kind of that nuanced and thoughtfully approached. And I immediately thought of the Gary Hart role, frankly, and <laughs> reached out to him. And he, he really dug the script. And we had breakfast, and we started talking about how we like to make movies, and found our uh, ourselves to be very aligned in kind of how we approach the work. And the other thing he's known for, besides being you know overwhelmingly decent, is for being about as hardworking an actor as there is. You know whether he's learning choreography or how to sing or how to do a fight scene or you know researching the background of a character. He just you know his line to me was, "I never want to feel like I could have done more," and and that that proved to be very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you had Vera Farmiga, who is kind of rejoining you after you guys collaborated together on Up in the Air. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because the two roles are kind of bookends to each other. She plays, between Up in the Air and the front runner. Vera Farmiga plays either side of an affair. And, and look, uh, there is kind of a standard issue way of how to play the person who's being cheated upon. And, and that is to become shrill and angry. And there's kind of a simplicity to that. And Vera doesn't do simple. Right. Everything she does <laughs> is complicated and nuanced. And her strength comes through quietly. She's a force to be reckoned with. I mean, she was on Up in the Air and she was on this film as well. Uh, and she's intimidating. And, uh, and it's exciting to give Hugh an actor who can really go toe-to-toe with him the way that she does and the way that J.K. Simmons does. Yeah, and, and you mentioned J.K. Simmons. Obviously, you guys worked together on Juno way back in the day and, and several other times. Um, yeah, so. this is actually our ninth movie together, if you is can believe it. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Didn't you executive produce Whiplash as well? Yeah, Whiplash and Jennifer's Body. And yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a bunch of movies. And, you know, our first movie, of course, was Thank You for Smoking Together, right. uh, where he played Nick Naylor's boss, and then he's in Up in the Air, and uh, he played uh, in Young Adult, he was Mavis's boss. And you know, the only one he's not in is Tully, and I, I still regret it, but I just I literally I could not find a role for him. Right, you're reading scripts thinking, thinking all right, where's the J.K. role? Or, or writing, I guess, right? Does it just come I, to you? Honestly... Like- <laughs> There, there honestly is a part of me that is always going, okay, but what is JK going to play? Right. <laughs> uh, because he, I don't think it's a film of mine if he's not in it. But, yeah. uh, and I kind of think in his voice, and I also think he's just one of the greatest actors alive, you know, hands down. So I feel very lucky that I get to work with him. You said you're a student of movie history, and this film has been compared, I think, on the Toronto Film Festival landing page um, to Robert Altman. Was that were you thinking about Robert Altman and the player when you were making it? What are the political films that have inspired you? 
Certainly. I mean, look, uh, when you think about Altman, you think about these languid master shots that are not focused on any given character, but rather focused on the scene at large and the kind of the overlapping way in which kind of real human interaction happens. And and we we definitely looked at that. And, and uh, you know, during prep, we watched Nashville and we'd kind of play and pause and talk about, you know, what made it effective. Uh, the North Star for this film, though, was Michael Ritchie's The Candidate. And uh, I'm a big Michael Ritchie fan. I think that trio of films he did at the top of his career, Downhill Racer, The Candidate, and Smile are one of the greatest starts to a career that I can think of. And we watched it, uh, the writers and I, Matt, Jay, and I, and immediately recognized the tone and style of what we wanted to achieve on this film. Oh, that's cool. So the three of you sat down, watched it, and were like, all right, let's get to work. Yeah, because look, uh, I mean, that's the funny thing about telling a movie about real events. And, you know, this is the first time I've done that. Uh, I've never made a movie about anything real, let alone people who are, you know, still alive. And so when you do a movie about real events, the plot already exists. Like you don't have to figure out what happens. What what happened happened. So now the question is, how are you telling this, and why are you telling this? And when we watched the candidate, the how became very clear. Have you talked to Gary Hart about this movie? Has he seen it? Yeah, yeah. I, I met him beforehand. Uh, we were in contact during the movie, uh, and he has seen the film. Were you scared showing it to him? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the scariest. Look, showing the movie to Donna Rice and to Gary and to his campaign staff and to Tom Fiedler, I mean, these are the scariest screenings I've ever had. Scarier than showing my first movie to my dad my first time. It'd be great if you had one screening with all of them in there. Uh-huh. Yeah, that'd be that. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, on a boat. Right. <laughs> but uh, Gary, as the others, felt that the movie had empathy for him. And, 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 treated him with respect and, and kind of the kind of decency that I think a lot of them, Gary Hart has been looking for, Donna Rice has been looking for uh, in the 30 years since this all happened. Uh, you know, uh, these are people who were private people who wound up in a very public story and and received kind of no empathy in the retelling of their story. You know, their story was kind of told as a joke and Hart went from being the presumed next president to one week later leaving politics forever. So he's a thoughtful person and he was hoping for a thoughtful approach. And I think he recognized that we at least, you know, were attempting to do that. Do you follow politics these days a lot? Were you trying to comment on, on the current state of things with this film? Who doesn't follow politics yeah, these days? Right? Yeah. I mean, really, I, I, you know, I think uh, politics have taken over for the Sopranos and Game of Thrones. It's what we talk about each day. And uh, it's impossible to be alive today and not think about it. You know, funny enough, we wrote this movie in 2015. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so the movie is written prior to the presidential election. It's written prior to kind of the Harvey Weinstein revelations and the Me Too movement. And... And then as we were making this movie, the world shifted under our feet. Yeah. Uh, so it, the movie has become, it, it, it's been relevant, but now it's almost, it, it's too, I could deal with less relevancy, <laughs> you know, honestly. I can imagine. Speaking of relevancy, have you seen this story uh, when I think Matt Bai was, was involved in it, that there's now evidence that Gary Hart might have been set up by Lee Atwater? Yeah, no, I'm, I, I've read the story and... It's a fascinating read, you know, obviously, you know, this is a deathbed confession and, you know, hard to know 
you know, the complete accuracy of it. Right. But it's interesting and, 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 and most interesting because you realize uh, it really gets to this idea how one moment can change the trajectory of a country. You know, whether or not you're a fan of Gary Hart, without him in the race, the Democrats were not able to field a, a, a suitable candidate in time. And and instead, you know, George Bush became president. You know, uh, uh, we have the first Iraq war. Um, we get, you know, because of his presidency, uh, his son eventually becomes president. We, you know, Dick Cheney becomes, you know, a, a character in this nation's history. And, you know, a lot of things change. Yeah. It's a fascinating kind of microcosm of that relationship between policy and personality that has kind of just reached a really insane levels uh, in the current state of things, but but has been has affected, obviously always affected politics, but really um, in the last, I guess, 30 years, it's been a huge thing. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And look, you may be a, a fan of the two Bush presidencies and you may uh, continue to think that it was a good idea that uh, we went into Iraq and... But it's impossible to be alive right now. It's impossible to be alive in 2018 and not think the system is broken in yeah. one way or another. Kind of nowhere, no matter where you land politically, uh, something's not quite right. And we're all trying to fix it. And one of the ideas at the core of this is where, you know, the politics meets personal and who these people are and how much we know about them. And, and where shame comes in to be a factor, you know. Uh, you know, we have a system in which... People who experience shame drop out of the race, you know, the, right. you know, the way Al Franken did. And then the people who don't experience shame remain and thrive. So we have a, a system that favors the shameless. Somebody on Twitter the other day said shamelessness is their superpower. And I think we all know, you know, what they're thinking of. So but that's fascinating that you really have you've, you've gotten to that in this film. I also want to talk about Tully because it's it's a very different film. It's amazing t- for you to have both of these in the same year, continuing your your um, collaboration with Diablo Cody and with um, yeah. with Charlize Theron. Do, do you see a through line between Juno, Young Adult and and Tully, the three films you've done with Diablo? I do. You know, uh, I was really fortunate uh, 10, 12 years ago to meet Diablo Cody. And, you know, what I didn't know at the time was that it was the beginning of a lifelong storytelling relationship. You know, it's kind of a marriage. And we're around the same age and we're growing up together. And what I've noticed after the fact is that each one of these films kind of represents where she and I are in our own trajectory. Uh, you know, what is it like to be, you know, leaving your 20s and having a sense of the loss of innocence um, and what, you know, what it means to, to finally grow up, uh, you know, in Juno and then in Young Adult, uh, you know, which is this thoughtful approach to never feeling like you are an actual grown-up. And then Tully, which speaks to the idea of postpartum depression a lot, but, you know, on a larger scale is is about the moment that you say goodbye to your younger self. So I, I, I see it as this kind of trajectory of Diablo and I are growing up and trying to understand where we are in our own timelines. And I hope that that continues with all the films we get to make together. Yeah. And what about Charlize? I mean, my experience of interviewing a lot of people is Charlize is one of the smartest actors around who's like a real person. Is that uh, not that other actors are not smart or real people, but she seems like she's she's scoring very high on those on those charts. Charlize is exceptionally smart. More importantly, she's exceptionally funny and kind of 
killed me uh, with a joke uh, upon first meeting. What was the joke? I can't. I can't. It's too dark. It's like sincerely too dark a joke. But it. Uh, but she just slayed me, and and I fell for her right there and then. And look, you know, as a director, every once in a while you just meet an actor that you have perfect chemistry with, and you know you just want to make movies with, you know, for the rest of your life. And Charlize is one of them, and Hugh, frankly, is another. Uh, and we just kind of see to eye to eye on how we want to make movies and why we want to make movies. And and Charlize is as is Hugh. Two smart people who are exceptional talents, decent to the people around them, and are both trying to make the world a better place. And they, uh, they both, uh, you know, blaze a path that we all can follow in. They, they make, you know, they each make me want to be a better person. You mentioned, you know, being aligned on why you want to make movies. Has has your reason for wanting to make movies changed in the in the ten years since you did Juno, or the thirteen years since you did um, Thank You for Smoking? Uh, it's a great question and one that I'm always, you know, trying to figure out for myself. Uh, I certainly, when I started making movies, I just wanted to get across the finish line, just right, yeah. get the movie done somehow and get it, you know, in front of an audience. And what's shifted over time is I've just calmed down a little and worried a little bit less and learned to really enjoy uh, the gift that it is to be able to make movies, to be on set with such smart storytellers, both in front of the camera and behind it, collaborators that I've been working with for so long now that they've become close friends. And I get to watch them grow as storytellers. Um, great example, you know, Steve Morrow, who uh, is a production sound mixer on The Front Runner, which had a really complicated soundtrack. And he got 20 actors, all all with mics, and he's pointing your ears to who you should be listening to. He's someone I've worked with since Thank You for Smoking. He did Little Miss Sunshine. More recently, he did uh, La La Land, and he did Star is Born, and he's just doing you know, the best work of his life. And he's a good friend. And I get to watch him on that trajectory. And I get to storytell with him. Uh, or Eric Spielberg, my cinematographer, who I've known since I was a teenager. You know, the idea that I got to meet these people in my life and continue to get make movies with them. And just like with Diablo, we grow together uh, is is a thrill. And I think I think right now it's it's the reason I make movies. Your father, Ivan Reitman, directed Meatballs, Stripes, and Ghostbusters, which is like enough for any person to be able to say. Um, and and did you grow up on on sets? Did you grow up with Bill Murray like pranking you and stuff? Or, or... <laughs> uh, I was eleven days old on the set of Animal House, okay. and that <laughs> clearly had a profound impact. Uh, and yeah, I've been on all these sets. Um, I did grow up on sets. I had my first production assistant job when I was 13 on Kindergarten Cop. I uh, also had my first kiss on screen in Kindergarten Cop. Oh, wow. So my childhood was kind of woven throughout my father's movies. And and frankly, when I think about my childhood, I can kind of time things out to kind of what movie was being shot at the time more than, you know, what grade I was in. It was a just an incredible way to grow up. It's like growing up in the circus, you know, you're with all these fascinating people who every morning drive the trucks and, you know, it's like they put up the tent and they tell a story and filmmaking is every day you get to do something no one's ever done before. You know, no matter what, you're showing up at a place and you're going to film it in a way that presumably no one's filmed it before. And you're figuring out something new. And there's a 
there's a thrill to that that I can't imagine being measured up to in any other business. Uh, the, the the way that every day is a surprise, and it's a it was a really exciting way to grow up. Are there things about your dad that that didn't make sense when you were a little kid, and now that you're a director doing the same kind of work, you're like, oh, now I understand. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I can th- come up with an example right off the top of my <laughs> head, but. Uh, look, directing's hard. I mean, it's just the truth. I mean, it uh, uh, it 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 is a lot of pressure. Is the pressure to tell the story? Is the pressure to get it done? You know, on time and on a budget, and you're responsible for all these people who showed up for work, uh, who are looking to you to give them guidance, to give them purpose. You know, all these people who show up to make a movie, whether you're driving the trucks or or operating the camera or, uh, or making the food you're all sacrificing something, right? You know, they all have families, they all have lives, and they're sacrificing time, you know, at their kids, at their homes, with their spouses and their partners uh, to go tell some story that you think was so important to tell. And uh, and it's up to you to do something good enough that makes that sacrifice worthwhile. Uh, you know, not to mention the money that is being spent um, and the and the people who will eventually, you know, buy a ticket and give up a couple hours of their life just to kind of listen to whatever, you know, you thought was important enough uh, for them to watch. So uh, there's this pressure that comes with it. And, I, you know, I probably didn't think about that when I was a kid. I just thought, oh, this is so cool to be on a movie set. And I would see him get stressed out. And I thought, ah, OK. And now, <laughs> now I get it. You know, I'm a dad and I make movies and uh, it's a tricky balance. Yeah. Has he given you any, any good advice? Is there any, is there one thing you've learned? Oh from my him? God. I mean, I could, uh, I could honestly, uh, write a very long book on <laughs> all the advice he's given me. And it's all, it, I, for the most part, it's all been good. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, and frankly, anytime I meet a young director or an actor who's thinking about directing and they want to grab a bite and, and, you know, kind of hear whatever I, I have to offer inevitably, 90% of what I say begins with, you know what my dad always likes to say? Right. You know, here's a story my dad told me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, it's been 10 years since you went to the Oscars nominated for uh, director for Juno. Was that your first time at the Oscars? What do you remember about that night? It's a blur now, frankly, uh, but it was um, one of the great moments of my life. I mean, I remember the, the moment I, I was nominated for the first time. Uh, I, I really did not think it was going to happen. I had woken up at five in the morning or whatever it was to to watch Diablo get nominated, which you know at that point was kind of a certainty, uh, and with the hope that Ellen Page would get nominated and the the hope that the movie might get a Best Picture nomination. It, you know, it had been you know there had been enough talk about it that it seemed like oh this might just happen, but no, no one, uh, including myself, thought that I would be nominated. And when it did, I just kind of froze. I just couldn't believe it. And the first person to call me was my father and he was crying and he could barely finish a sentence. He was trying to tell me that he was just so proud of me. And it's one of the great moments of my life. That is really cool. Well, Hey, here's hoping it happens again. And thank you for, for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, these are it's, it's really rare to have two excellent, incredibly great films in one year. So thanks for sharing your, your taking the risk uh, on these stories to share them with us. You were way too kind. This was a pleasure. Let's do it again. All right. Thanks, Jason. Take care. 
That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening. Keep finding us on Apple Podcasts and reviewing us. Keep letting other people know that we're out there. Uh, keep the award season conversation going with us. Uh, you can find us at VanityFair.com where you can read reviews of mid-90s and Can You Ever Forgive Me and lots of other things we've talked about. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Jarethis. And Cam, who had to leave us, is at Melville Matic. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best explanation for why Mike Hogan is not with us goes to Cam Collins. You know, Gen X, do your thing. 